Hello Gospel Life Church and all those who are joining us online. We're so thankful that you have come to study God's Word with us and we're excited about the opportunity to look into God's Word again today. Our text for this morning is going to be Isaiah chapter 61. So if you want to turn there, we'll read that in a minute. But we're going to continue on with our study here in Isaiah. And the theme of that study is expressing our thanks to God for future glory. So we've looked at future glory uh, as described in chapter 60, and so we're going to see it described here in chapter 61. The title of the sermon today is The Agent of Future Glory. An agent is a person that's acting on behalf of someone else to bring about a specific outcome. And when we come to chapter 61, we see here that the agent of God is the one who will bring about our future glory. So I'm excited about our text today. Hopefully you've turned there. Let's read uh, you can follow along as I read. Starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they shall build upon ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flock, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat with the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give to them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorn herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text and for the opportunity to know more about you, to learn more about your work, to worship and glorify you, and uh, to challenge ourselves to live in service to you. I pray that you would use this text in our lives to challenge and encourage us. Lord, we pray for uh, our nation right now. We pray for uh, those that are making decisions for our nation. We pray for Pre President Trump and Vice President Pence that you would give wisdom beyond their means. We pray for Congress, specifically those that represent us, so the U.S. Senators from Illinois, Durbin and Duckworth, and the U.S. Representatives from the Will County area, uh, Rush and Kelly and Lipinski and Foster and Hutzgren and, and Kinzinger, or that you would, again, give them wisdom beyond their means, help them make wise choices in this time. I pray for our governor, Governor Pritzker, uh, as well, that you would give him wisdom as he seeks to 
um, lead us here in our state. We ask not just for them, but for us as a nation. We ask that you would give us patience. Uh, ask us, ask that we would be charitable, especially as Christians. That we would be known by our love and demonstrate our love, both for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but then for our fellow human beings as well. Uh, help us to be examples of that kind of love and, and that we should be demonstrating to one another. And then, Lord, we want to declare that our hope is not in our govern, government, ultimately, not in our personal safety, not in the escape from suffering, but rather our hope is in our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. He stands alone as the one that we trust and put our faith in. And I pray that, that we would be a demonstration of that to those that are around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to paint a picture as we go to our text. And it's a picture of a tradesman who enters uh, the gathering of God's people. He is known and respected member of his community and of the gathering of God's people. And on that day, he's given the honor of reading from the text of Scripture and sharing his understanding of that text for the conviction and the encouragement of those in attendance. The attendant of God's word hands him the prophecies of Isaiah. And after searching for his text, he reads aloud Isaiah 61, verse 1, and the first half of verse 2. He gives the text back to the attendant and then immediately sits down. Everyone there begins to stare at him, waiting for him to expound upon the text. And finally, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The people marvel at his gracious words, we're told, and said, Is not this Joseph's son? Here this scene is shocking for those in attendance. And honestly, if we were in attendance as well, it would be quite shocking also. I mean, imagine someone doing that today, someone you had known, someone you'd watch grow up and uh, for 30 plus years and then comes in and proclaims that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I mean, it would be shocking indeed. And yet, by God's grace, we know more to this story. You see, the gathering was at the synagogue in Nazareth. The carpenter was Jesus of Nazareth who read the scripture. And this is a historical account. And if this historical account was all that we knew of Jesus, we might find reason to doubt his claims. But fortunately, God has given us much, much more revelation about Jesus. And as Christians, it is not, therefore, surprising for us to see Jesus interpreting Isaiah 61 in this way. Jesus affirmed in, in quoting 61 and then saying, Today the scripture is fulfilled in, in your hearing, that he is the speaker here. He is the anointed one. He is what we understand to be the Christ, the Messiah. That is all encompass that idea of anointing one. He's the one the Jews were waiting for, to bring about God's plan of salvation for his people and to bring about their future glory. And since he is God, we would be wise to read Isaiah 61 the same way Jesus did. We should see Jesus here in this text. And so this morning, I hope that that will be the case Today, my main point is this. You are to live in thankfulness to God for the agent of your future glory, 
Jesus Christ. You are to live in thankfulness to God for the agent of your future glory, Jesus Christ. So I want us to ask three questions of this text, and then uh, the fourth point will be connecting it to everyday life. But as we come to the text, I, I want us to just understand again, you know, the, what's going on here. Um, Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel, who is not yet in captivity with, in Babylon, but yet this whole text is looking forward to that, to that um, exile and captivity in Babylon and to their return and the glorious future that awaits them in their return. And yet we've already understood that, that these prophecies envision and encompass far more than that. It encompasses also a, a bringing uh, of, of all of God's people out of exile to sin and rebellion and separation from God and into his family. That God the Father is uh, delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his Son, through who is our Redeemer and the forgiver of sins. And so this truth and this reality is also found here. That the, the anointed one's coming is that bringing that about. But then there's this third reality as well. There's, there's the future glory that goes beyond that, that. That looks forward to the second coming of the anointed one. When he will come to make all things right. And when he will come to judge the, the world of righteousness and justice. And his people will go to live with him forever in their glorified bodies in heaven. And all those who who have rejected him, or are still in their sins, will be punished for an eternity. And so we have those three layers. And as we come to this text, we have to understand that, that there are three ways in which this text is going to be fulfilled. There are aspects of this text that are going to be fulfilled by the Jewish nation returning from exile to Babylon. There are going to be aspects of this text um, that are going to be fulfilled when the anointed one comes. And there are aspects of these, this text that's going to be fulfilled when in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, we have to understand that some of the, some of the, uh, some of the ways in which these prophecies are fulfilled are physical. So with the nation coming back out of Babylon, there's physical fulfillment. But then with the anointed one coming, Jesus Christ, we find that the majority of it is a spiritual fulfillment. But then we look forward to the day, and that spiritual fulfillment is kind of the guarantee for what is coming in the future, that, that final full fulfillment of all things. So for instance, uh, we can say that we have uh, been released from sin. We're going to look at that in one of our texts. But just as an example right here, we've been released from our Sin that held us captive by the coming of Jesus Christ, by his crucifixion, by his payment of sin. All who put their faith and trust in him and turn from their sins are released from their captivity of sin. We're no longer slaves. But yet, what do we know? We know that living right now at this time, sin still lives within us. While we are no longer slaves to sin, he, sin is no longer our master. Jesus Christ is our master. We still struggle with sin. We haven't been freed from all of its presence yet in our life. Oh, its power is definitely weakened. He's been crushed by Jesus Christ. 
And yet the presence is still there. And sometimes we choose to fall back into sin, even as Christians. Yet we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here is the fullness of that fulfillment. Right now, spiritually fulfilled. We are no longer slaves to sin, but sin lives in us. But future, what is coming? Sin will no longer be in us. Sin will be gone. And that's what we look forward to, the fulfillment of it in its entirety. We sometimes talk about the already experience that we have and the not yet experience. That there are realities that we can experience now in Jesus Christ, and yet the fullness of it is yet to come. So as we go into this text, we need to just remember that that is present here in our text. So the first question, how is God's agent described? You see three descriptions here in the first three verses. And the first one is in the first part of verse 1. And I have described him as the anointed. The anointed. We see here, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And here we can kind of see that idea of agency here. We see that it's the Lord who has anointed. And the idea of being anointed in the Old Testament was being chosen, being set apart. And here God is choosing Jesus Christ to be his representative, to be his agent. He is to act on behalf of God. And we see this in the New Testament. Jesus has come to do the will of God the Father. And that appointment to this place, this choosing of God, we even read, is before the foundation of the world. Jesus is appointed to his task of, of incarnating himself, becoming the representative of God to humanity, to die on the cross, to rise again, and to save all of God's people. I mean, this has been chosen by God, placed upon Jesus Christ as this unique, anoint, anointed one to do this work. And he's empowered by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Lord God that is upon him. And again, we see that in the New Testament. We see that Jesus Christ comes and he does his work in the Spirit by the will of the Father as their representative. So he is the anointed one. Unlike any other. And all the other anointings in the Old Testament kind of look forward to and point towards this ultimate anointing of Jesus Christ, the anointing of David or of Solomon you could think of, all point towards Jesus Christ. But not only that, we see in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, we see that that the uh, agent, God's agent is described as the preacher or proclaimer. He's the one that brings the good news, proclaims liberty, and proclaims the year of the Lord. And here, I think we can break this down, this section down, and see that Jesus fulfills all three of the unique offices that we see throughout the Old Testament um, in, his, in his proclamation, in his revelation as the Word of God. We see that he is the preacher as the prophet in the first part there when it says to bring good news to the poor. And now the poor is not meant to be understood just financially. Again, remember that, that when Jesus comes, primarily what he brings is spiritual newness of life. And so poverty here is meant to be understood as, as great need. We're desperately in need. We're destitute. And Jesus comes in as the prophet to proclaim the good news that there is fulfillment and fullness in him. But not only that, he comes as the priest. And that's the next phrase there. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Here he's binding up or making whole or making clean those who have been, uh, those who have been crushed 
and those who have been unwell in body and soul. And really this kind of points back to Leviticus, uh, where uh, when someone was unclean or unwhole, they, they had to separate themselves from the people of God. So they have leprosy or something like that. They had to separate themselves from the people of God. And then if they were cured or healed in some way, they had to go and show themselves to the priest. And the priest would reinstate them, would proclaim them whole. And here, Jesus is the one who binds up those who are brokenhearted, who are unwhole, unwell. But not only that, we see him as king. He is the one who proclaims liberty to the captives, to opening of the prison to those who are bound, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Here in his kingly role, he's able to proclaim freedom for people who are bound. Again, spiritually is what we're meant to think primarily, bound by sin, bound in our, our rebellion, bound as slaves to our own sinful nature, our own desires. And yet what do we see? Jesus comes to proclaim liberty. But not only that, the year of our Lord's favor, that he would demonstrate his grace upon us. And, and it's interesting, this is where Jesus stops reading in Luke 4. And I think partly it's because Jesus has come not to condemn the world, but that by, the, by, by him the world might be saved. He has come to demonstrate grace. It's undeserved, unearned, and yet is given to God's people, to all who would trust in him. God, Jesus comes to present the Lord's favor. And that's what has come in Jesus Christ. That he has come to proclaim all these things, to to give us our greatest need to make us whole new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works he has come to bring us freedom from our sin and from slavery and from our punishment for our sin which is eternal death he has come to free us from those things yet we see as well in verse 2 what Jesus didn't read is that in the day of vengeance of our God he's come to also proclaim that and 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 Jesus does talk about that coming. That's his second coming. He, he describes it to the religious leaders. He says, he says, you will one day see the Son of Man seated on the clouds in judgment over you. And so that day is coming, but that day is yet future. Right now is still the year of the Lord's favor. And if you are not trusted in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins and trust in him today. Not only is he the anointed and the preacher, but verse 3 tells us as well that he is the giver. We read, to grant those who mourn in Zion and to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. Here we see Jesus as the giver, God's agent described as the one who gives. Now the contrast here is between these beautiful headdresses and ashes, uh, between oils of gladness and mourning, garments of praise and a fainting spirit. And really we have to understand the Jewish tradition of mourning, that they would rent their garments and they would sit in, in ashes, heaping ashes on their head and wail loudly. And, and this is the place that, that the Jewish nation is in, in their captivity in Babylon, that they are a people who mourn. 
In fact, we're told that they, they struggle to sing any of the songs of Zion while they're in Babylon. There's, there's no hint of a, a hope of joy for them. And yet, what is promised here is promised uh, this return. And, and, and yet, even on the return, when they come back from Babylon, what happens? They see all the destruction. They see the city walls destroyed, the temple destroyed. And what do we have in Zion? We have the same kind of mourning going on. And yet the promise is that this, this type of mourning will be replaced. That instead of ashes on your head, he will place this beautiful headdress or a crown. Instead of, of the wailings of mourning, the oil of gladness will be poured out upon you. And so your heart will rejoice with joy and gladness. Instead of this faint spirit that would rent its garments, what do we read? We have been given the garments of praise. And again, we're meant to understand that both this is already happening spiritually in Jesus Christ, and yet there's this ultimate fulfillment that is yet to come. That spiritually, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4. We live in victory as the people of God. And yet, we totally understand when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 10, that he is living as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Like we haven't escaped the sorrow of this world yet. And yet, there's an aspect within us that cannot help to rejoice when we think of what Jesus has done for us and who he is and that he will never leave us and forsake us. That his love will always be ours. Nothing can separate us from it. Yet we do look forward to that day. That day that is coming when Jesus returns when all sorrow will cease. When truly this giving will be fulfilled in its fullness. As we read in Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the heavens, prepared as a bride adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I mean, we look forward to that day when the giver will replace all our sorrow, all our mourning with joy. Second question. What is the result of the coming of God's agent? We see here a transition in our text. Transition from who, uh, who the anointed is and what he's doing to, to what, what happens to those who are his. And we see it in, in the middle of verse 3, that they may be called oaks to righteousness. So we see this to bring, to proclaim, to grant, to give, to comfort, and then that they may be called oaks of righteousness. And here I see this transition to the results of, of the coming of God's agents. And, and as God's agent comes, he creates a people. And, and, and there's three kind of descriptions of this people he creates. And the first one is found in uh, the last part of verse 3 through verse 5, is this creation of a righteous people. They are called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, notice there's this giving uh, of, of righteousness to us. It's God who plants us in righteousness. We are his creation, created in Christ for good works. But the dead is given life. The unrighteous is made righteous. 
But not only that, in verse 4, we see that sin's devastation is reversed. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And we see here this, this shift. Now, par- partially, again, we can recognize that it's fulfilled in the return of Israel from exile. Uh, the Jews come back, and they begin to rebuild. And uh, we read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. We read about the rebuilding process, and yet... There's more to that than that. Uh, why were these cities destroyed? Why was the temple destroyed? Because the the sin of the Jews. And yet, if we go beyond to look at now what, how Jesus came, Jesus came didn't not just to like rebuild um, the nation of Israel. What has He come to do? He's come to save humanity from the devastation of sin. And Jesus comes, and sin's devastation is reversed. And where once sin was devastating to each of our lives, Jesus calls us out of darkness into glorious light. And as his people, we begin to see sin's devastation reversed even in our own lives. Not only that, verse 6 describes the creation of a worshiping people. You shall, call the, you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. And you shall... Eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Here, rebels are made priests and ministers of God who get to experience um, and, and participate and enjoy the wealth of nations. Now, this is, not, this is not a role that we deserve, a role that we earn. Again, we don't earn our own righteousness. The Lord plants us so that he might be glorified, and in turn, This creation of a worshiping people is just as much a work of God as the creation of a righteous people. We, by nature, worship the wrong things. We, by nature, worship self and our own desires, our own lusts. And now, because of Jesus Christ, because of his work, we are made priests of the Lord and ministers of God. And then the third result of of the coming of God's agent, Jesus Christ, is found in 7 through 9. It's the creation of an honorable people. Notice what it says in verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. I mean, the fact the nation of Israel itself could, can understand this because God sent them into exile. So even in their return, what shame, what dishonor, that, that they would have been disciplined in such a way by God. And yet, it's true of, of us as well, us who... Each one of us who have come out of sin, out of darkness, we look back on our former lives prior to Christ, and, and there might be shame, and there might be dishonor, and yet the promise is, both now spiritually, as Jesus has taken our sins upon himself, he takes our shame, he takes our dishonor, so that, so that he can say that, that our sins are cast into the depths of the sea, or, or, or as far as the east is from the west. I mean, this is the kind of of honor that we are now brought into, that that God does not see our sins, but he sees his son when he looks at us. Our shame has been removed. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. Justice is upheld. He will faithfully give them their recompense and will make an everlasting covenant with them. What, what is amazing, that, that it would seem like justice would be for us sinners, that he would discipline us and destroy us for eternity. 
our punishment, our right deserving for our sin. And what, what do we find? He says he will faithfully give us our recompense, which is an eternal covenant. How is that possible? Well, because he has created us as righteous people in Jesus Christ and has created us as worshipful people in Jesus Christ. And therefore, in Jesus Christ, we are acceptable before God. And therefore, he makes an eternal covenant with us. And what is at the root of the eternal covenant is that I am their God and they are my people. How glorious, glorious is the work of the agent of God, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to question number three. How should we respond to God's agent? It's interesting uh, verses here at the end, verse 10 and 11. Some people have saw, seen this as uh, the people of, of, of Jerusalem or Zion responding, but I, I think it fits with Jesus still continuing to speak here as the anointed one. Nothing here really indicates that, that the personal pronoun should be changed uh, to refer to a different person. But how is Jesus then saying that he has been clothed with garments of salvation and covered with robes of righteousness? Well, I think what's going on here, here Jesus is worshiping on behalf of his people. And in turn, demonstrating to us how we should respond to this. And, and, and it fits rightly in, in, in the fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the head of God's people, and we are the body and so the head of the church is declaring now the blessings of the body. And how does he say we should respond? Well, first of all, we should respond rejoicing in our righteous garments of salvation. Notice he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with robes of righteousness. And what does that look like? It looks like a bridegroom decking himself out for the wedding. The bride adorning herself with jewels. That, that here in Jesus Christ, the body, God's people, the church, have been given garments of righteousness and salvation. It's given to us by Jesus through his death and resurrection. So that he represents as the head this gloriously new righteous and saved body. And in turn, it's Jesus who makes us acceptable before God. This bridegroom and this bride entering into um, this relationship with one another, they enter in, in an acceptable way, dressed appropriately, with honor. And, and Jesus is the one who makes us acceptable to God with honor. He decks his church out like this. In turn, not only... Does he call us here to respond with rejoicing in our righteous garments of salvation, but in reaping a harvest of righteous acts of worship as well? And that's verse 11. Verse 11, For the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. Christians have been planted by God to reap a harvest of righteousness and praise. And this harvest is to sprout up before all nations. Uh, our Christian lives are meant to be public, just like Jesus' life. Jesus lived a life of praise and righteousness. Worship, glory to God, and always doing the will of the Father. And in turn, that's what we should do as well. Glorify God and do the will of our God. 
How can we connect this to everyday life? Three things. First, express thankfulness to God's agent of future glory, Jesus Christ. Whether you want to think about him as the anointed or the preacher or the giver, uh, making you righteous, worshipful, and honorable, anything from this text, begin to mull over your satisfaction, your joyful enjoyment of Jesus Christ, and let that overflow in thanksgiving. Don't miss another moment to thank God for his glorious son, Jesus Christ. Don't miss an opportunity to express that thankfulness to others for your Savior, Jesus Christ. Number two, worship Jesus Christ through praise. Worship Jesus Christ through praise. I mean, they're, they're at the end, as we're looking at that third question. There's certain responses that we should have. And there should be this overflow of praise. Praise Him through your speaking. Praise Him through your singing. Praise Him through the way you pray. Praise Him in a way that others see, others experience, others know. Our lives are planted where they are at so that all nations may observe them. You are where you are so that the people around you might see the praise of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And the third thing, worship Jesus Christ through obedience. So the Lord will cause both righteousness and praise to sprout up. So that praise isn't sprout, but righteousness as well. And what does that mean? Doing, doing what is right, being what is right. Worshiping Jesus Christ through our obedience. And maybe it needs to start with repentance. Where you know that you are not being obedient, repent. And then in turn, it, your repentance should flow into what? Obedience. I wasn't doing what is right. I recognized it. It was wrong. I confess it. And now what? I live in obedience. If you're living in obedience, continue. Continue on in it. I want to encourage you, as it says in Galatians 6, 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, and Hebrews 12, 3, do not grow weary of doing good. Because, because in your doing good, you are sprouting up what has been sown in you, the praise and righteousness of our God, the glories of of this agent of God, Jesus Christ, having brought you good news to meet, that meets your need, having made you whole by binding up your brokenheartedness, having, having liberated you from your captivity, and now you have the opportunity to live for him. Do not grow weary of doing good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, and we ask that it would be compelling, that it would cause us to live life in a way that reflects your glorious king, your glorious priest, your glorious prophet, your glorious representative, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Or may, may we live lives of praise and obedience. And may you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.